Hi, this is Frank McKenna, the Chief Executive and Group Chairman of Downtown in Business. And I want to tell you about a fabulous conference that we're hosting on Thursday, the 7th of September, 2023. In association with Sedulo Group, BDP and VSI Executive Education, we'll be hosting a one-day event, Business of Sport, at the home of Lancashire Cricket Club during the international football break in the autumn. The conference will attract up to 200 delegates from sports organisations, private sector companies and public sector agencies from across the country. Our confirmed speakers so far include Gary Neville, the ex-Manchester United and England footballer turned pundit and entrepreneur. Sir Howard Bernstein, former Chief Exec of Manchester City Council, part of the City's Commonwealth Games delivery and legacy team. The Chief Executive of Women in Football, Yvonne Harrison. GB Javelin Champion and Olympic medalist Goldie Sayers, the Chief Exec of FC United, Natalie Atkinson, and the Chair of the Rugby League World Cup, Chris Brindley. Tickets are available now. Go to downtowninbusiness.com. You'll find out all the information in the events section of our website. More speakers to be announced shortly, but it is going to be a fantastic day. That's Thursday, the 7th of September, 2023, Downtown in Business's Business of Sport Conference. My name is Andy McIntyre. I'm co-founder with Tony Fawner of VSI Executive Education. We are thrilled to be working in partnership with Frank McKenna and his fabulous team at Downtown in Business on a series of 10 podcasts focusing the business of sport. We'll be engaging with some of the industry's most influential figures at a time when the English Premier League in particular has become a truly global force. I'd like to welcome Chris Millard to the Downtown and VSI podcast series today. Chris is a very, very different uh, engagement in that he is the Chief Executive Officer of the Barmy Army. The Barmy Army is synonymous with noisy cricket, travelling the world, supporting England's various uh, men's and women's uh, cricket teams. But working with Chris, I've discovered the Barmy Army is an awful lot more than that. Chris, for those that don't know, explain what the Barmy Army is exactly. Thanks, Andy. Thanks for having me on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here with you and talk a little bit more about the Barmy Army. A lot of people misconceive the Barmy Army to be a group of guys that travel away and, and support England everywhere they go and just pop up organically. Um, for people that are more involved with the game and understand the game at a deeper level, they, they understand what actually goes into running the Barmy Army. It's the largest supporters club in the world. Um, it, it's got We've got over 40,000 members. Um, we've got over 1.5 million followers on social media. So you can really see the, the depth of what the, the operation is. But um, to give you a little bit of a potted history, the Barmy Army started in 1994. It was three guys that went backpacking around Australia. England were losing quite badly in Adelaide. And there was, there was those three guys decided um, to stay there day five, no sun cream on, still singing, even though England were losing in an, an awful game. Um, Could have been Newcastle United fans. <laughs> Could have been a lot of sports teams. I'm not going to mention my club. Um, so, so that they were there and the, and the media branded them the Barmy Army. Barmy because they were still there when England were losing, just something that doesn't happen in Australia. It's very English, isn't it? Let's support us when we're really, really bad. It's yeah. like really English. As a Manchester City fan, I know we're at the height of our powers. <laughs> playing in... Uh, 
third tier English distant football past that and the distant past um, and then then they decided to trademark it so the three entrepreneurial guys decided to trademark the Barmy Army name in the UK and Australia printed some search, some t-shirts for the next test match and sold out very quickly thought oh we could be onto something here brought it back to the UK 28 years later um, with this, the statistics I told you earlier we've got 16 staff uh, we run our own travel program we, we, we describe ourselves as an experience company we, prov- we make cricket more enjoyable for the fan. That's how we like to position ourselves in the market. We can take people away traveling. We sell merchandise. We do podcasts ourselves. We uh, work with the media a lot. We have really, really strong stakeholder relationships within the game to be able to, um, I guess, grow and try and make uh, people understand what the Barmy Army is about, but also about the values of cricket and how um, cricket for me is one of the, the best sports in the world for uniting different cultures um, no matter where you're from who you are your background there's a there's a shared love of the game throughout the world and that just shows you by uh, the different amount of countries that play it um, how unified it is in the stands when people are supporting major games at World Cup so it's something that we, we've been trying to tell the story of and really promote throughout the, the, the last seven years that I've been involved with the business and we're starting to get there with the messaging I think people are really understanding the value set that the Barmy Army holds and that it's about far more than cricket it's about people connecting people and uh, I'm using cricket as a almost a mobiliser for that yeah I think that what's great about the Barmy Army is the way it celebrates diversity and, and brings fans from all parts of the world together um, in contrast with the story that we're, we're hearing out of Yorkshire County Cricket Club where um, there's clearly been major issues around uh, the culture and uh, the relationship between uh, players and, and at a board level uh, in terms of diversity. Talk me through a little bit about that because it is very much at odds with with what we would see most recently in Pakistan where uh, the engagement, I thought, between uh, the Barmy Army and the Pakistan fans who've not seen international cricket for a long time was quite extraordinary. Absolutely. The, the Pakistan tour was really typified what it's about being a Barmy Army member, whether it's Australia, you're in the sunshine with... 20,000 England fans or whether it's Pakistan where there's 30 of you um, in Multan where you have to have an armed guard everywhere the Barmy Army was still there the Barmy Army are always there but they received an incredibly warm welcome didn't they from the Pakistan uh, cricket supporters Absolutely. And they were so thankful to us for travelling. It's been 17 years since anyone went to Pakistan, especially supporting the, the country. The, the teams have, have played there recently, but behind closed doors. And now fans were allowed to travel. We, we felt it was our, almost our duty to do that. And I've never, ever met a community of people like it. So welcoming, so warm. Um, people, people in Pakistan, it's, it's not a very affluent country, but they won't let you pay for anything. You'll go there, you'll get a taxi and they'll be saying, no, no, it's, it's our honour to have you here. It's our honour to host you. And it's, you, you really are just blown away with the outpouring of love for, for people for travelling there again, but also for, uh, I guess, supporting the nation, supporting the country. But let's let's be honest, when the Barmy Army travel anywhere, we put millions into the local economies because of the vo- volume of numbers that go there. West Indies 2018, the Barbados Herald reported that the Barmy Army put 80 million US dollars into circulation during that West Indies tour. Um, in Australia, 300 million on the last Ashes tour. So you're talking big volume um, for local businesses, local hotels, partners in and around uh, what what goes on in a cricket series um, really do benefit from the Barmy Army travelling. And, and Pakistan was no different to that. And that's why I believe they were so thankful to have us there. 
I will address your Yorkshire point. <laughs> it's something we try and steer clear of, um, in all honesty, because it really doesn't align with our values and what happened um, at Yorkshire was was very upsetting, I think, for the game. It really, really did cause um, a lot of animosity towards everyone within the game, any business within the game uh, was scrutinised. And of course, what went on was was awful and should never have happened in the first place. And I think the, the real issues that have transpired from that is how it's been handled by, um, one, by Yorkshire County Cricket Club, what they did with the staff and um, how that was handled was, wasn't favourable towards the game. Um, but then also how it's really uh, the, the trickle effect down the cricket chain. Uh, we're, we're really passionate, really positive, always glass half full cricket fans. Um, but we found ourselves in a really tricky position um, where you really have to look at yourself and look at your business and look at your value set and really stick to what you know and your core values and they, they, they get you through really. So um, it was a tricky time for the game, but I'm pleased it's it's now used as a building block to go forward and progress and, and try and grow and for the better, the, the game needs to move on. So you're convinced that there's a genuine commitment in cricket now to eradicate the type of thing that we saw at, at Yorkshire County Cricket Club? Absolutely. There's been a lot of lessons learned. There's been a lot of uh, positive steps in the right direction, um, a lot, lot of positive messages coming out of the game, and and it can only it can only improve um, how people watch, support, play, and enjoy the game that we all love. End of the day, we all love what happens on the on the cricket field, and anything to improve that and enhance that, it can only only be a positive step for the game. Now you touched on the numbers game in cricket, and it really is the case of the rich man, poor man, isn't it? Uh, county cricket struggling to, for its very existence and yet at the opposite extreme the likes of the IPL and other franchise cricket around the world generating multi-million pound revenues tell me a little bit to start with about the IPL and the revenues there and then we'll, we'll come and look at county cricket and see uh, what the potential solution is in, in that environment because the women's IPL is a spectacular success it's incredible. Everyone involved in the game knows this has been years coming and it really feels like there's a lot of momentum behind the IPL now. Everyone who enjoys the game, enjoys cricket and watches cricket understands where it's going. I don't. We don't know how much longer that players will be contracted primarily to the countries. It's only a matter of time before IPL teams have franchises in South Africa, potentially Australia, obviously India, Dubai, the UK, dare I say. I'm um, sure we'll get onto the hundred later. Um, it's only a matter of time before that the real shift uh, happens. Who's, who's to say five, ten years? Um, but it can only be a, a positive step for for the players primarily. I think there's a there's a lot of um, conflict in interests now. The players are unsure what to do. A lot of them want to represent the country, and that's the priority and that's the passion. But at the end of the day, that it's their job. If they're getting offered. Um, triple, sometimes quadruple what they earn in a year for six weeks' work. I think anyone with their real family hat on would make the the obvious decision, and that's what a lot of players have done. And you can't blame them for that. It's not the players' fault. Um, I think it's it's been something that's been coming for a while, and I think we should all do everything to embrace it rather than resist it. Is there a way of accommodating both? Because as cricket purists would look forward to an Ashes summer, um, like no other sporting occasion, the prospect of losing Test match cricket um, is devastating. It is. 
it's devastating for the West Indies, Sri Lanka, South Africa. Um, I, I can't see a day where I'm still working within sport um, before I retire, which I'm a fair few years away <laughs> from, um, where test cricket isn't around. It brings so much money in, especially England, Australia, England, India, India, Australia. It is such a valuable asset. And like the IPL, like other major events, those real massive test matches are, are huge for broadcast rights, but also for, for travel, uh, for hospitality, F&B. They sell out all the time. The Ashes, the Ashes sold out in, for the Barmy Army, we sold out in about two hours. Wow. And that's, that's over 15,000 tickets. It's a lot of tickets for us, for our membership. But players are being flogged relentlessly at the moment on, on this circuit. And are, are we going to see the very best of them on the big occasions, given the amount of cricket that they're playing? Scheduling's an issue. I think you can't hide from that. We've, we've got a lot of personal relationships with a lot of the players. We know how much of a strain it is on them. Um, going from Pakistan, New Zealand, IPL, coming back to the UK, playing Nash's Test, it is relentless. 100, 150 days at the home. Some have got young families. Something needs to change with the scheduling. Um, I can't really, for the life of me, see bilateral series against the likes of Sri Lanka, West Indies, New Zealand still happening in five years because of the burden and the strain it puts on the, the players, um, which will be absolutely disastrous for those nations because what I talked about earlier when Barney Army goes to the West Indies, how much it puts into the local economy. Um, but I do feel that Test cricket will survive on a, on a on a grander scale because it's still the pinnacle. You ask the players, you ask the players that are at the top of their game, they want to play Test cricket because it's the biggest test. It's the hardest format. It, the, the feeling is within the within the playing circles that if you prove yourself on a Test level, you, you've made it in cricket. Um, you only have to look at Ben Stokes; he could earn multi multi millions for the rest of his life playing two or three weeks here or there. Yeah, he commits his body to test cricket, which is undoubtedly going to cut his career short. He's going to lose millions of pounds by doing that. But it's test cricket. That's what he loves and that, that's why it will survive. Well, that's good news for me because I'm a big fan of test cricket. <laughs> me too, me too. There's nothing like it, is there? No, there is absolutely nothing like it. However, you have to recognise that uh, franchise cricket is here and is here to stay and is massively popular. It would seem that the women's franchise cricket, the women's IPL, are now the most expensive or the most valued sports franchises in the world for women. It's incredible, isn't it? I, th I think we, we all knew it was coming, matter of time, matter of how and when. The women's IPL was also a great spectacle to watch. I know a lot of people that uh, have watched the women's game from afar, and I was speaking to them during the women's IPL, and they really enjoyed uh, you, you were one of them, Andy. I was very much one of them. I, I was absolutely blown away by the women's IPL. The, the drama, the excitement, the quality of the athletes was uh, absolutely superb. Yeah, I, th I think we look at exactly what you touched on, the quality of the athletes from that 2017 World Cup where England won in the UK to where the women's athletes are now and the funding that's gone into that, that structure and that system. It is just really good to see and it's real progress you look at women's football um how good that was how good the euros was and i think i don't think cricket's too far behind um it will be will be great to continue to watch it grow and develop the barmy army we had a franchise team in the Fairbreak global tournament it's just happened sadly we lost in the semi-finals um but we had we had some very famous names playing for us um in that tournament and it was fantastic to see Fairbreak for those listening that don't really know too much about it it's it's a global 
cricket franchise tournament, similar to the IPL, where the, the women come and play for the franchises and they all get paid a fair amount and the same amount across each player. And it's, um, it's trying to put anyone, whether they're a professional, semi-professional cricketer in Brazil, in Hong Kong, the same opportunity that you get if you're a professional cricketer in England, Australia, India, and so on and so forth. So there's some real talent there. I guess where the women's game is, um, in some of the emerging nations is a lot closer to what it would be in the men's game. So I think you're going to see strong teams in years to come from USA, from Brazil, uh, from Hong Kong. You've got some really good cricketers in there. And I, I think that, that will show in, in years to come. Um, just, I did touch sorry, Andy, I did touch on the USA there, that in five years, the um, Major League Cricket will be the second biggest franchise tournament in the world after the IPL. Explain to listeners just what's happening there now. So it's the first year of Major League Cricket. There's an awful lot of investment going into Major League Cricket, which is happening in Texas next. Uh, sorry, in Texas in July this year, and that there will be very similar to the IPL franchise teams from all over the states, um, with the plan to grow that out in years to come. And there's some, already some massive signings that have gone there: Quinton de Kock, Aaron Finch. Jason Roy is rumoured to be going. Liam Plunkett's already out there. So you, you don't really see in year one of the franchise tournament those sort of names going, so you know they mean business. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, it's right in the heart of traditional English summer season. What are the implications for our summer season? It's a disruptor, that's for sure. It, that is one of the biggest problems. I think the, the beauty of it for the other nations is they're not playing a lot of cricket during our summer unless they're playing against England because they're Southern Hemisphere nations. So it will attract a lot of cricket from Southern Hemisphere teams. Uh, will cause us problems. Uh, however, you're seeing the likes of Alex Hales, Jason Roy already pretty much nailing their colours to the mast that they play white ball formats. You're going to have a, a time where real elite players play red ball and white ball cricket, but a lot of the players either play county cricket County cricket, county cricket, a little bit of red, a little bit of white ball, or you get your white ball cricketers that just go through the system. What's the pathway to the test team, given what you said? Because there is so little red ball cricket played now. It's it's changing, it's evolving. I think, but so is test cricket. The game's evolving. So you're looking at the way England. Bas ball, you're talking about there. Basketball, yeah, the players won't like me for saying that, but um, it's they, they like to think there's a lot more strategy that goes into it than go out and whack it. But um, tell me, t- tell me for the uninitiated, what basketball is exactly and why it's described as basketball? Because it has been a massive change in the way Test cricket is has, has played and massively impactful for TV audiences. Absolutely, the, the part of history of basketball is Brendan McCullum, the ex-New Zealand all-round, uh, ex-New Zealand batter, keeper, uh, very, very successful player, loved by the Kiwis and always loved for his passion, but his aggressive style of cricket. He's now the head coach of, of English cricket, English test cricket, and he, he took a new approach to the game and a new idea. Um, it was high risk, high reward, and that's exactly what's happened. I think we've won the last 12 games out of 13 or some ludicrous stat like that where they've gone out um, whereas cricket, test, traditional test cricket, the run rate in the first innings is two to three and over, very, very max three and over. Now, basball, they, they aim to go at four, five and over at least, potentially six and over. You've got really aggressive players batting in the top five and trying to just shift the dial, give themselves more time to bowl teams out, give themselves more time to pile on the pressure. 
onto the opposition. So far it's worked. The only real opposition we haven't faced to give us a real threat is Australia, who the old enemy who are going to be there this summer. So I think if you are a partial cricket fan, an armchair cricket fan, I imagine you probably enjoyed the 2019 World Cup. I'm expecting similar sort of scenes in people's houses where England and Australia are going at it, very similar to 05. It's been a long time since we've won an Ashes, so it will be very, very exciting. I think there'll be fireworks this summer. It, yeah, it's it's incredibly exciting. It's not far away now from recording of this podcast and you're already seeing the, the old um, gouging going on on social media between the Barmy Army, um, the ECB and, and Cricket Australia. So it's really good. There's no rivalry like it. Um, it's a very aggressive rivalry. It's a very passionate rivalry, but it's it's a fair rivalry. There's, there's a lot of... Um, relationships on and off the field between English and Australia. The, the history of the two nations is huge, isn't it? And um, to get one over on the old enemy would be, um, there'd be nothing sweeter this summer. Now, the thing that both VSI and downtown and business are big on is leadership. So you touched on Brendan McCullum there, but he seems to have found the per- perfect captain on the field to mirror his image in Ben Stokes. Now, I know you know Ben Stokes. Give people a little insight into what he's like, because he's an extraordinary individual. They really complement each other. I think um, when when you get a high-performance team, it really is down to the leadership, as we speak about on the VSI. And you've got Ben Stokes, who's a very relaxed, calm man, um, but loves the pressure situations. And and he always makes sure that he's the the one leading the team if they need to in finals and in pressure moments. And he's a a real leader, um, leads by example on the pitch, off the pitch, and enjoys pressure. And you can see that with his performances when it matters the most. And Brendan McCullum's really relaxed the environment. Um, It's test cricket. There's a lot of stress. There's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of media, a lot of external influence. Um, He's just taken the, the pressure out of the environment and really just let them relax and go and express themselves. I think one thing that really stuck with me, I was speaking to a couple of the players at the end of the New Zealand series and they said, we've had the best time ever and played some cricket. We were so relaxed. We had a great time. We played a lot of golf, um, had a lot of conversations. We've all improved with cricketers. But the one thing is they've, they've been coached all their lives. They probably don't need coaching anymore. High, high, high level and high pressure coaching. It's more about mentorship. It's more about leadership, how you should uh, represent yourself on the field and what you should do, how you should approach the game. And I think that's really showing as a forward thinking way of dealing with high performance athletes. They've shown a lot of loyalty to players as well, haven't they? They've almost made them feel secure that they're not going to be left out if they have two or three bad games. And that seems to have delivered for them. I think that's key in any role in business. And I think... I think it hasn't been a tradition of English cricket. It hasn't been a tradition of English cricket, but you know as well as I do, in business, uh, if you can take people on your journey rather than pushing them to one side and bringing someone else in, someone fresher in, um, it usually works well. You look at uh, comparing football teams now, but you look at the success Watford have had constantly changing their manager in comparison with teams with a plan like Brentford, Brighton in football. And there's no different... Uh, that mentality to, to what the ECB approach has been now. It's been about, okay, let's put the foundations in place. Let's put the building blocks in place and let's try and work together to move things forward rather than make um, hasty decisions um, if things don't go our way. And I think that's testament to you, you've got players in there that were under pressure before. Ollie Pope, yeah. who, who's now nailed on number three for as long as I can, for as far as I can see in the future, he looks all the one of the best number threes in the world. Um, you've got Zach Crawley, who's often questioned, and but he's always given that trust and that autonomy to go out there and try and start the game in the right direction. Well, he's a really interesting case in question, isn't he? Because when he'd had a bad run, 
Um, Penn Stokes was openly quoting, we expect him to have bad trots because he's that kind of player, but we back him. And he went out and scored a century the next day. And that's exactly, I think if you're Zach Crawley in your hotel room, that's what you want to hear and really hear and you've got that trust and faith relaxes you again and you can go out there and express yourselves. And he's a player that can win you a game. Okay, he might he might not get any runs for five or six games, but he can take the game away from teams really quickly. And he is part of that mindset and that plan that they've got at the um, ECB at the minute. Who should we be looking out for on the Australian side this summer? <laughs> Good question. Um, you can't look away from Labuschagne and Smith. They they are just unbelievable cricketers. I don't know how they do it. Um, they're painful to watch for the purists like yourself and I. Um, there's no Joe Root esque technique there, is there? <laughs> no, but they're very very yeah very effective. Um, and I think their bowling unit's amazing, isn't it? They've got four of the best seamers in the world, and they've got Nathan Lyon as a spinner. It's really hard to look past. But um, I, I really do back us. We've got so much depth of the bowling. Uh, we've got so much depth with the batting. Uh, I just can't see um, how we how we lose this series. You've got Johnny Bairstow to come back in. Uh, don't forget, and he's a, he's a shoe in to get in the team somewhere. So we'll go back to talking about revenues. Obviously, for the for the Test match stadiums, these are huge occasions. I know they've controversially tended to, to secure a, a Test match, um, but broadcast has been the foundation of much of the cricket revenue. Do we miss out, however, as a sport on not having free-to-air cricket? Great question. I would say it's a it's quite multi-layered this answer because because the big bash, for example, is 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 free-to-air, isn't it? As a as a fan, yeah. yes, without doubt. The indie series was on Channel Four and just after COVID, and the viewing figures were exceptional. Um, people really enjoyed it, watching it, and people were, were able to watch it. My my grandma was watching cricket again. She's not watched it since 2005, which is fabulous to hear and see and, and talk to her about that. So it really can buy in that other demographic that they're missing out on. However, let's be frank, uh, you've got to pay the bills. In the ECB, you've got to find the cash from somewhere. The money that they get off Sky and off BT for some away series is, is nowhere near the level that what the likes of BBC Channel 4 ITV can afford. Yeah. Now you talked about new generations of people watching cricket, your granny being slightly older <laughs> generation. The 100 was designed very much to embrace uh, mums and young children. It was, it was, and that's on free-to-air TV. And I think if you look at, we spoke about the women's game earlier, what the 100's done for the women's game in the UK is fantastic. It's brought people in, it's filled stadiums to watch the women's teams and it's brought the best women's players um, around the globe to the UK. I think if you then throw that to the men's game, has it the desired effect for me as a cricket fan and someone within the game already probably not um, has it had the effect on someone who's a partial cricket fan and watches it and likes it every now and then perhaps so that the ECB were quite clear in the message and it, it really wasn't targeted at us it wasn't for us pure cricket fans it was trying to re-engage that new generation and it's hard to say it hasn't done that okay it lost money last year um, it continues to lose money um, will it be here in 2027 when the rights deal's up. I'm not sure. Will it go to private equity? In my opinion, probably. Then potentially to the IPL franchises. Who, who knows? Do you think um, a, a T20 franchise, City franchise, would have done better than the 100, given that it's so widely played around the world? Without a shadow of a doubt, it would have done better. However, the 
complexities around the county structure and how that would have affected some of the teams not having a county uh, T20 blast team. Um, because if you were going to do that, you wouldn't. I don't feel the Vitality Blast would be able to coexist. The reason it coexists is because the 100 can happen without real too much disruption to the county structure. And you're going to say, okay, is county cricket sustainable? That's exactly what I was about to ask you <laughs> because the numbers tell me it's not. Now, I know if you speak to uh, the county uh, the chief executives, they'll talk about Old Trafford them being an event management business, same at Edgbiston. And uh, county cricket plays a part in that. But fundamentally, it's financially bankrupt. It is, and it's hard to look past that. And the ECB have bailed the game out on numerous occasions. I, I feel that, will it be here in five, ten years? Probably not to the level we know it now. Um, is it sustainable? No. But could we do something about it? Yes. I really do think that the, the administrators could do something about it. We spoke about terrestrial TV. We spoke about re-engaging with the community of fans that aren't engaged with it at the minute. Counter cricket's on um, midweek in the daytime. I really feel like there could be more of an effort from broadcast and from people within the game to try and elevate the county game again because I know a lot of my friends would watch it. A lot of people that I know would watch it if they were given the opportunity. It's on the free streaming services on online, which is okay, but it isn't accessible for a lot of people that. Um, so not, I, not a great watching experience, is it either? Empty, empty grounds? No, it isn't a great watching experience. And But you look at the Sheffield Shield, you look at other tournament four-day tournaments around the world they don't pull in the crowds they used to and that's an evolution of the game there wasn't t20 cricket then that is an evolution of the game but we need to keep producing red ball cricketers for test cricket and um i, I do think there will be a red ball form in five ten years to come uh what that will look like i'm not sure it really depends on the county structure and as you well know the the structure of the votes at the ecb is quite complex and everyone has a vote so it's hard to it's hard to move the game forward without buying from all of the counties how does how do they manage it in Australia, for example, with grade cricket, and and then they've got the next level up? It's in a fa franchise structure, um, very similar to how they manage sport in the US, um, but but in Australia, a lot of the sport is franchised there, and and that's able to uh, distribute the money equally, um, but also have players playing man, minor minor league cricket, which is grade cricket, which is a really high level. So if you look at the Australian model, is it better than the setup in the UK for red ball? Probably. But it isn't as old and as historic as our structure. Uh, so there isn't the layers of complexity there as well. I mean, some of the fundamentals of cricket, are, I guess, are quintessential, yet incredibly outdated. The fact that you play with two different balls, depending upon which country you're playing in. So in a SEMA-friendly uh, summer in England with a Duke ball, um, very different sport from playing in, in Pakistan or in India with an alternative ball. It is, it's com and that, but that's why people love it and that's why the purists love it because there are these intricacies like no other in the sports. and Eccentricities. Eccentricities. Of Who'd have thought a ball that's produced in Australia would make such a difference compared to a ball that's produced in the UK and have so many people talking about a blooming ball. So it's, um, but it's so radically different, isn't it? I guess the, the, the tennis equivalent would be playing on clay courts, which is slow with a high bounce as opposed to a, the fast courts of Wimbledon. It's Correct. And I think it does take you to watch it. If, if you watched a game being played in India, Australia and England on the same day at the same time, you'd be able to real see the radical difference, the ball and the pitch and the conditions make. And that, that's what makes it also beautiful at the same time. And that's why people love it so much and are so passionate about it. And that's 
that's why cricket, I believe, in the longest format will coexist because as soon as you put a white ball into the game and side screens and people are trying to smash it out of the park, those intricacies also go. Yeah, I was going to ask you because the, the globalisation of cricket, will that lead to a more... There has to be a global uh, cricket calendar that's collectively agreed, otherwise we, you've just got anarchy. There, there has to be, and that will only happen if the ICC can really get control of it with their key stick key stakeholders um, there's so many franchise tournaments now there's the Abu Dhabi T10 League there's the Bangladeshi Premier League there's the Pakistan League CPL IPL M MCL MLC so there really needs to be some sort of governance and control in there that there isn't at the moment um, that's happened in test cricket with the World Test Championship um, which is thrown the schedule into disarray um, our followers our fans will have gone to India three times by this time next year and we're all planning to go to South Africa on a big tour and I know we we provide experiences and provide holidays India is an incredible experience for the cricket fan um, as a as a guy that runs a bit business in cricket travel that you don't take many couples many families it really is a cricket purist trip and a very passionate trip um, I'm off, off there myself on May the 4th of the IPL you are indeed, which will be an incredible experience. And I'd encourage anyone who partially likes cricket to, to get out to India for some cricket if they can in their life, because it is so unique. The same with Pakistan. But if I put my commercial lens on and look at it from a business perspective, the, the, the impact it has on cricket travel and cricket travel businesses, not having a South Africa test tour, not having a, a Caribbean test tour for the next five, 10 years is huge really really big the impact it has on on us and on other cricket travel companies is 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 incredibly um large and sri lanka a country we've not been to for so long um there's there's no finance going into that nation um we're looking at what we can do there we're, we're planning a fans world cup there just before the actual world cup so um, a country that's had true greats like mulritha and um heralding from there to, to, to see the test game dying and, and tours not happening there is desperately sad it is desperately sad. They've, they've just played Ireland in a test series, actually, but it just doesn't have the same pull as an English crowd does. We, we, we go there and there's Barmy Army tuk-tuks. There's drivers that have branded the tuk-tuk with the Barmy Army on because they just want everyone to love them and that they outpour of and Do you own the community. IP? On we own the, yeah, I've, I've had cease and desist letters in my, in my rucksack hanging them out to tuk-tuk drivers and <laughs> do a deal with them and say, right, do you want this letter with a fine and all? Are you going to drive me around to wherever I want to go, whenever I want to go? So we always strike a deal. Oh, you better give me one of those when I'm out in India. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I will. Yeah, you can. Yeah, but that, it, it is a problem. The Barmy Army um, is trademarked globally, um, text and logo. Um, we're on, I think our team in the office are, daily getting flags, um, Etsy and all the other online platforms where people are, oh, Barney Army, let's stick it on a shirt. I think Wolves were the latest to infringe our IP. So we always Really? Tell us about that. Yeah, they, I think they, in their club shop, they had a Wolves some, something Barney Army shirt and we were, well, we can't do that. <laughs> Cease and desist or we just have a little chat with them and then they understand uh, that we own the IP. But that's, again, that's part of my job to tell the story about the Barmy Army, tell the branding, the Barmy Army, and just give people an idea that um, it is a livelihood for a lot of people. Um, we've got a big membership following. We've got a big backing on social media. And we've got a real positive outpouring from the cricket community. Um, but it's also a job and it, and people well, don't realise that. Tell me how this became, how do you become the chief executive of the Barmy <laughs> Army? When you, when you left your sixth form clutching your A-levels proudly, did you think you were going to be the chief executive of the Barmy Army? Not quite, not quite. But my 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 two-liner every time is always someone's got to do it. So um, 
when I when I left university, I was chatting to so Joe Root from Sheffield, a very good friend of mine. We've grown up together. He'd just started out on the England scene and and he said For those that don't know one of England's finest ever players and, and formerly the captain of England. Yes, absolutely. I, I'm biased, so I say if you don't know Joe Root, I think you you don't really know cricket. But um Well we're not talking exclusively to a cricket audience, no. it's predominantly a business audience. So For sure, uh, yeah. So Joe Joe is uh He's been up there for sports personality quite a few times on the shortlist. He's never won it, sadly, but he's been one of English's greatest ever, What I, who I think will be the greatest all-time test player um, if he beats the record set by Sachin Tendulkar, who was now the, the greatest test player. Um, Joe, Joe and I were chatting back in, I think it was 2013 when he first made it. And he said, did you know you could work for the Barmy Army? I was like, nah, surely that's not a job. He's like, oh, you can. He's like, oh, okay, nice one. So I left university, looked for some work experience. He gave me the number of Paul Burnham, who was the owner uh, and founder of the Barmy Army. And he was running at the time. So one thing led to another. I went on the South Africa tour, did some work with them. Great work experience trip, by the way, South Africa away <laughs> for four weeks. Um, the university weren't too happy with it. When I did. <laughs> um, and the rest is history, really. I've, I've been with the company ever since. Uh, moved down to London, was running the business with Paul and then put a proposal. He was, Paul was looking to retire. Um, put a proposal together for Paul um, in 2017 um, to make me the MD and relocate the business up north to Sheffield, where I'm from, and rebuild the team. We rebranded. We took the St. George's flag out, which wasn't a popular decision at the time, but it was a, a decision based on inclusivity and trying to grow the brand um, in, in all areas around the world. So um, the Barmy Army logo now is quite clean and, it, and it's proved to be the right decision and it really has made the made the company grow from strength to strength, in my opinion. And what's the future strategy for the Barmy Army? The, the future strategy for the Barmy Army is to continue on our trajectory of growth, but also to diversify and try and create the, um, the, the best, the greatest, the most passionate sporting experience wherever we are in the world, whoever we're supporting. So whether that's the European team in the Ryder Cup, whether that's the Lions team in Australia, or the England team in the Ashes, we, we want to make unrivaled sporting experiences the, the place where people people want to travel with us. And if if you've got a bucket list, Andy, I'd hope to see an Ashes tour, a Lions tour, a Ryder Cup tour with the Barmy Army on there. Well, knowing how you'd give me such favourable rates, how could I really resist, resist <laughs> that opportunity? We can talk about that. <laughs> Listen, it's been absolutely fascinating speaking to you. It's a fabulous business. I think you've shown great innovation and vision to take it where it is. Really excited to see where it goes from here. And um, that's Look forward to a great Ashes summer and many, many thanks for taking time out to speak to the VSI and Downtown podcast today. Thanks, Andy. And just for all the listeners, VSI programme, I've been on for a fair few months now. It's been an incredibly enjoyable experience, but also it's been something that um, has opened my eyes and opened my network tenfold and given me opportunities that I didn't think I'd have um, in my current position. So if anyone's listening to this, thinking about this, then highly recommend it. My LinkedIn. If anyone wants to talk to me, he's always open. So happy to chat and share experiences. That's very kind of you to say so. And I'm sure if you engage with Frank McKenna and his team at Downtown in Business, they'll elevate you even further in terms of uh, your network and your connections. Fantastic. Thanks, Andy. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Chris. Hi, this is Frank McKenna, the Chief Executive and Group Chairman of Downtown in Business. And I want to tell you about a fabulous conference that we're hosting on Thursday, the 7th of September, 2023. In association with Sedulo Group, BDP and VSI Executive Education, we'll be hosting a one-day event 
business of sport at the home of Lancashire Cricket Club during the international football break in the autumn. The conference will attract up to 200 delegates from sports organisations, private sector companies and public sector agencies from across the country. Our confirmed speakers so far include Gary Neville, the ex-Manchester United and England footballer turned pundit and entrepreneur, Sir Howard Bernstein, former Chief Exec of Manchester City Council, part of the City's Commonwealth Games delivery and legacy team, the Chief Executive of Women in Football, Yvonne Harrison, GB Javelin Champion and Olympic medalist Goldie Sayers, the Chief Exec of FC United, Natalie Atkinson, and the Chair of the Rugby League World Cup, Chris Brindley. Tickets are available now. Go to downtowninbusiness.com. You'll find out all the information in the events section of our website. More speakers to be announced shortly, but it is going to be a fantastic day. That's Thursday, the 7th of September, 2023, Downtown in Business's Business of Sport Conference. <laughs>